0: Welcome to Oilfield Talk. My name is Trey Falk, and I'm host of Oilfield Talk podcast. We want to speak with workers from all other aspects of the oil and gas industry and allow them the outlet to tell some crazy, amazing stories you just wouldn't believe are true. Not just the Wildcats, the drillers, the Roughnecks, the Roustabouts, but the land-based, offshore drilling operations, service companies, vendors, third-party personnel, production, transportation, all aspects of the industry that provide expertise throughout the oil field industry. But each of these have many, many hilarious stories to share about their time in the oil patch. I have no doubt that we will be able to share entertaining stories or tell tall tales that anyone who works in the industry will appreciate and get a hearty laugh while listening. But this is also gonna be a family podcast. We'll be able to invite our families at home to listen Although they won't believe half the stories we share, they may have a couple of dozen questions. Maybe it will give them and everyone a greater appreciation of the jobs we have in the oil field and why we enjoy our oil field family for half a year. So please take an hour or so out of your day, give a listen to the oil field talk podcast. Hope you enjoy the stories as much as I enjoy bringing them to you. Welcome to Wallfield Talk. I'm Trey Fought sitting in Katy, Texas with Mr. Dan Morrison. Yes. We're going to have a conversation. (laughs) I met Dan through LinkedIn. Just so happened we have a common friend, a Scottish friend in the uh, northern parts of the UK. We hope to have on as a guest in the near future. We're going to touch base with him after. Welcome to Wallfield Talk.
1: I appreciate it, Trey. First rig I was ever on. I was 12 years old, West Texas. My dad had a drilling mug company, and I was probably the last kids that were allowed on an active drill rig floor with flip-flops and a T-shirt that said, I love the 70s. Oh, wow. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. So when I went to college, the ironic thing was, you know, after 83, you had the oil field crash. Bottom. And he got out of the drilling mud business, stayed in the clay mining oh, Okay. But when I went to school at UT as a chemical engineer, he would say, son, you, you can major in whatever you want, but just don't major in psychology. Or be a petroleum engineer.
0: <laughs> one of the so, two. Don't one so, so I got as close
1: as possible to be a petroleum engineer. I was a chemical engineer. So when I graduated, I told my father I was going to work for one of the major service companies. <laughs> he was like, Sanford and Sons, I'm, I'm oh, going to see you. I'm Gracie. having the big one. I'm having the big one. That's he right. He goes, are you dumb? <laughs> I just, I just crashed in this oil field, and you're going to get in it. Well, then about 98, he was like, well, oh, I think that was the smartest decision you ever made in your entire life. Well, oil all feels
0: cyclical. The bottom fell out in the 80s and bankrupted a lot of people,
1: but it came back. I think you're sort of seeing a bankruptcy of sorts in the industry right now. Oh, we have but it's been. A, it's not a bankruptcy on the financial terms. It's a bankruptcy in confidence. I mean, you look at uh, Texas A&M, probably— uh, one of the most renowned universities in the world uh, for their expertise and I know I'm a longhorns so don't harm right. me uh, <laughs> but at the same time they're having to close schools because there's a lack of participation because people don't think there's a future in it oh wow in the petroleum in the petroleum world. oh I didn't know and that and analogous that's a big word there you go that's that $4 <laughs> word we just talked about analogous to the the mid 80s when you didn't have a lot of engineers going into petroleum engineering and we know when that's going to actually create a big problem it's not today it but it will turn 10
0: years from now when there's no engineers that came out and don't have any experience we're going to be in a bind
1: i remember one time we had a global meeting of all the global managers and i was sitting in this room and in houston down on i-10 and HR came in and they said, everybody stand up. If you're over 65, sit down. If you're over 60, did that exercise. When they got to 40, there was about three of us standing in the room. Right. They got to 35. I was the only person. I turned to my boss, who was VP at that time. You've probably seen him on Kramer and CNBC. But he, I turned to him, I said, see... I don't have to I, I don't have to win. I just have to wait 10 years for y'all to die that's off right. or retire and I'll be in control. No, you're absolutely and right. And they called it the big crew change. Yep. Well, you're having a second big crew change that's evolving Absolutely. from the political discord and Oh, on I didn't think about that away. policies that are coming down. That's why people are you know not what? going that's... into these majors. You are right. They're being told that you're not going to have hydrocarbons. Yeah, in we're going to get rid of that in 35.
0: 2035. Yeah. We're going to be By carbon neutral 2050 and be nobody's going to be,
1: you know, needing any of that petroleum stuff. We don't need that black stuff out of the ground. And it is not so not true. Of course. We're creating a deficit that's unnecessary.
0: Well, it'll be people, unsustainable. I mean, it's impossible. Absolutely. And although some of the uh, talking points want to make green and electric and everything, you know, perfect, it's not. I mean, the energy has to come from somewhere. And
1: there's no functional path forward other than through natural gas. Absolutely. And LNG. And whether you agree with climate change or you don't, there are certainties that are coming into our industry that... Everybody's having to structure their companies around certified natural. They're gas. making big
0: adjustments now.
1: Reduction of flaring. We methane just, mitigation. We just had an LNG of-
0: that adjusted their their plan. You know, they that, that port facility um, in Lake Charles or outside of Lake Charles, they were supposed to to do a certain amount. They had a plan, and they have augmented it. They've adjusted it. Yeah. So it's part of that same green changes that forcing some big.
1: Well, I mean, green's a funny word. I, I teach a lot of classes in the past at some of the universities, extension programs, graduate schools. I'll come in and give it. And I always start off with the example of, you know, when I asked the class, when did they first discover oil? Mm hmm. And, you know, everybody scratches around, starts taking guesses. But you get back into the 1860s, and Colonel Drake discovered the first oil well. And what was significant about that? Well, it kicked off the first oil boom. And what's significant about that in the 1860s? Well, there was no cars. (laughs) Right. What did it put out of business? It put the, uh, the whaling oil... That's right. Business out of it put the whaling industry out of business. Yep. So because that was the fuel oil for the lamps. Technically, oil was the first green fuel. <laughs> now flash forward. Right. And you know, you don't got Model T's, but you got t- running around. And I know I'm not supposed to mention product names. <laughs> no, I get it. I can always beep that out. But electric cars, you know. But you got electric cars. Where's that electricity come from? Natural gas. Yeah, They forget that. And so natural gas is probably the greenest fuel we have. The problem with natural gas is one molecule of natural gas is 70 times more uh, potent than a molecule of CO2 on an as measured time basis. Now uh, CO2 doesn't break down. Methane can degrade into other molecules at a faster rate so that potency reduces over time. But as long as everybody's playing off the same rules, <laughs> you can have functional investment into the energy infrastructure in the business. But the dynamics right now are making it so difficult. And Nobody wants to put money into it. And it, it's, it's not about yeah. being green or not green. It's about do you want insurance to back your project or do you want funding? You got funding and you don't have insurance, you don't, got you don't have a project.
0: Right. You don't have
1: a project. So it's not about being green or not being green and believing in it. It's reality right now with the companies around the world.
0: So if I'm hearing this, basically they've lost the, the uh, faith, I guess. They, they've lost the faith in returning investments? Oh, the investment community? I mean, is it the investments that are, that are not willing to put yes. in because they think it's going to disappear? Well, it's
1: not only the investment, it's the risk markets. I mean, you, you've you had some of the major players, I won't name names, right. but if you had to name the top three uh, risk underwriters, basically ah, okay. said they're exiting the hydrocarbon markets. Okay. So, and, But if they get out, then there's... Flash forward. I got gotcha. you. Conflict in Ukraine. Right. Now you had to have everybody pivot and they're realizing that's not realistic. And I think it's it, this is a story of polar extremes, but the reality is in the middle. And the market's having to reconcile that and come to the middle and realize, yes, do we want to have carbon objectives down the road? I think most of your major operators and players agree with that, but to get there, natural gas is the only option. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, nuclear uh, outside. Oh, it's a great possibility, but there's so much there's a lot. about it. You know, I, people don't want you know, it. My father's probably one of the biggest green fanatics in the world and smart guy used to own a drilling mug. He calls me up and goes, well, oil and gas be out of the business in 50 years. I said, how do you figure? He goes, oh, they're going to come out with fusion. I'm like, even if they came out with fusion next year, hmm. and in the U.S., we dropped all hydrocarbon production for power right. to shift to fusion, we're not going to put fusion in the developing parts of the world. You're not going to have it in all the parts of Africa who are not even on fossil fuels. They're burning wood for wood heat. They're cutting trees. For heat and cooking. When I go to some of these conferences internationally and I'm speaking, at, you know, last year at the World Energy Capital Assembly, and we had a whole special session on Africa and how important it was gonna play into future world energy needs. It's like we don't even if you don't have electricity, you that means you don't even have access to clean water. And doesn't how, can matter how the much the developed world say, oh, you need to cut back on your carbon deal <laughs> and not develop your natural gas resources when we're enjoying all this waste over here and you, you don't got access to clean water. So there has to be some pragmatic leadership that comes back into it, but that normally doesn't happen with politicians. It, no. happens, it happens from economies.
0: Well, and I was, I was thinking about your <laughs> example of insurance companies not insuring. You're right. The top three, for whatever reasons, choose to get out. And there's going to be a pause. There's somebody that's going to take that risk. And there will be somebody that will fill that. Take a little time maybe to find who that is. There's going to be somebody because there's a reward.
1: <laughs> One time my mother, she, she told me, she goes, spend any extensive time in the oil field. You've had good deals and you've had bad deals. And the bad deals normally revolve around bad actors. Hmm. And my mother goes, why don't you go to work for a nicer industry that's more honest? <laughs> I said, mom, this ain't church. No. I said, this is where the money's made and that's where you're going to find the snakes. But to your point... This is where the money's made. Right. And you, there will be a tipping point. And I think, I mean, you know, when people ask me about America, I'm like, man, we're very fortunate. Ooh. We're one of the cheapest places to make natural gas on the planet. Absolutely. I mean, we can drop the price of natural gas. And if you look at the production of plastics, high density, polyethylene, a lot of other things like steel, the cost of natural gas is a tremendous significant component Keep in those that equation low. We're the cheapest place on the planet right, right. now to make plastics. <laughs> Why do you think there's you know there, over know the that. past five to ten years of not only an expansion of the lNG facilities along the Texas Gulf Coast or the Gulf Coast in general right but an influx of development in expansion of the capacity of the chemical manufacturers right
0: and I live in the Chemical Corridor along the Mississippi. So they make that stuff up and down the river. You know what's funny about Mississippi
1: and Louisiana? All right now, be careful, Texas. (laughs) You could blindfold me, put me on a rig, and I could tell you if it's a rig from Louisiana or Mississippi. Yeah. Number one, you'd walk into the galley blindfolded, and you'd smell community coffee. There you go. Louisiana. Yep. Give me a glass of tea. Oh, it's sweet tea. No, that's Mississippi. <laughs> Take the blindfold off. It'd be chicken fried steak and white gravy from Mississippi. And it'd be hamburger steak and brown gravy from Louisiana. Louisiana. There you go. And we get the
0: best brisket from Texas. Texas. Hey, everybody's got to submit something. <laughs> Absolutely. LNG. I was thinking about the Haynesville Shale in North mm-hmm. Louisiana. I'm from North Louisiana. And when that... Was discovered and started to be uh, brought online. I was there. A lot of people. My, I have family that had land that was leased that had gas under it and all that kind of stuff. Huge tracks. Crazy times for land prices. Insane. Uh, I watched an
1: acre was going what twenty one thousand an acre leasing. I
0: have no idea what the numbers were. They were out the box. No, they were
1: they were over in excess of twenty one thousand an acre.
0: Wow, and. They poked holes all over the place and what happened? What what did they end up doing? They Deep drove holes. the price they drove the price of natural gas so far down that they had to I mean they pulled not pulled stakes, but they slowed down. They slowed down. But it's there.
1: It's always there.
0: That's it. It's That's still like there. Every
1: salt dome in the Gulf of Mexico, name me a salt dome, they stopped drilling around. You got a natural trapping structure or you got a, a natural source. It's not that you stop producing hydrocarbons, it's just uneconomic at the point that you are producing them. The Hainesville, you were talking some very deep wells, uh, super high pressures. You were talking uh, leasing rates at the time, 21,000 an acre, so if you got a thousand acres, you're tying up on a well to produce one horizontal. I mean, how many millions of dollars? Ooh. It's one. Th- or So that's a third of the cost. Right. Another ten million to drill a well. Another Became eight billion. Eight billion to frack it. It gets uneconomical.
0: Yep. And the infrastructure they still. And, but
1: that's the cool thing about the oil and gas industry. <laughs> we reinvent ourselves. We we've learned how to take that cost down. And well, we've done that. Especially- I mean, the Barnett Shell. Look at Mitchell. Right. Before then, to drill a horizontal well and frack it was uneconomic with all the people out there. As they started drilling horizontal, guess what happened? You had all these Tier 2, Tier 3 service companies emerge <laughs> in directional drilling and drove the price down. Right. And I remember when the Eagle Ford started— I mean, we were looking at eighteen to twenty-three million per well. Oof. Now we're drilling these horizontals down there. Uh, they're being drilled in what twelve days. I know they're fast. I've and never worked. A- twelve days. Yep. And instead of twenty-three million, they're down to like six point five to seven million. And they're sitting there moving rigs. And development costs, right? And that's, that's yeah. what drives. So it's technology is driving it too. There's going to come out with the technology. That drives the call slower. That's why you see it used to be single well pads. Now you got multi well pads. Absolutely, yeah. They just run them. And you're fracking 12 to 15 stages a day. <laughs> That's and some crazy it used technology. To be that you know you frack one stage, you move to the next well, you frack another. Right. The whole field reinvents itself. Every time they say it's dead, <laughs> it ain't dead. Just wait. It Somebody's going to come up with. Another way to do it. It actually prospers in the pain points. Well, look
0: what happened in the last 10 years. uh, 2014, 15, when the bottom fell out, you thought the 80s was bad. This was three times, four times
1: worse. No, I disagree. Really? Okay. The worst time was during COVID when the price went to zero. I'll give you that. And I got a satellite photo of a big fracturing service company I used to work for back in my bandcat days. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like every day I'm like trying to count how many pump trucks they had stacked out there. Who I mean we probably saw a fifty percent reduction in the service company out oh, there. Absolutely. And the people left the industry. There's people are not ne- coming back. They're never gonna return. They're not gonna come back. Now you got the the issue with the colleges. Now you got the issue with people going, I don't want to come back and work in an industry. I don't want to work in oil or don't want to you work. You know, I love the money. Yeah. I don't mind making the sacrifice. But when the bad kind times come, man, your family's left Suffers. there suffering. I've had many friends that, you know, when they went home and
0: they, they find something, they have to change their standard of living. They adjust their, you know, lifestyle. And then when that cycle, cycle comes back up and they get the call, come back, they're like, "I'm just gonna keep, you know, hauling logs or working my dozer or whatever they shifted to, yeah. because they're not willing to risk." And I don't blame them. I really don't.
1: I, 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 how but can you?
0: We're going to have to have manpower. We're gonna have to coming. have the experience. We, we
1: got a tidal wave. It's sort of like being in a tsunami. Everybody's on the beach right now, getting shells. The water's gone out. The waves coming. Yeah. And they're like, Well, I wish the price of natural gas I said, look, we're we're fixing to see an event where, you know, we're worried about two to three dollar natural gas man. I remember when the price of oil get touched uh, what was it, seven dollars? Back in 1998, and somebody acquired a ma- another major company, one major oil company. Oh, acquired oh yes. Another. Yes. We won't name names. Yes. But you got now these, have a you got these them, watershed think. events to where, you know, we're not going to see $7 oil again. Did we see it during COVID? Yes, for a day. But right. that was a trading glue. But you're not going to see $7 oil again. Nope. Well, We're coming to the point where through LNG export, I mean, we're exporting, uh, what, close to 13 BCF of gas a day. (laughs) Uh, We're exporting close to 6 to 7 BCF through pipelines to Mexico. Right. Natural gas is the fuel of the future, but it's about to get very costly. Okay. I mean, what is the price of natural gas in Europe today? I have no idea. It's north of $30. I know that. But here in the U.S., we're at, what, $2.90? Right. We're very fortunate to have this energy source. We have this infrastructure. What we need is uh, the politicians to stop being politicians (laughs) and start looking at the fortune of our country going forward and the people there. Right. We want to impact global change on environment. Man, be the leaders. We can do Don't it. Don't be the leaders in wind. Right. Be the leaders in natural gas because right. that's the bridge fuel. Yeah. Realistically, that's the direction it will end up
0: going. They're already proving out the others that are not quite as e- not, efficient, I guess. And I'm not against I
1: wind. I'm not against no, I agree. solar. Not against electric cars. I'm just... A common sense, pragmatic person. And which one's going to get us to where we want to go and which one's achievable? There you go. I mean, don't go, you know, try to reinvent something. Don't go sparring windmills (laughs) because you're going to practice for the future. Right. So you started off as what?
0: Did you start in the oil field after college, before college?
1: After, well, before college. As I told you, I was on the right, on the with phone. my father, yep. and uh, he had me bagging lignosulfonate mud. Okay. My, my cousin, well-known geologist, I knew how to read logs before I took geometry. <laughs> I knew what a gamma ray log was. Wow, that's knew. cool. <laughs> You're right. I mean, that's and the way it was. So when I went to work for this service company, I started off in cementing. Then they put me into coal tubing and they had a blowout event in the Ashfly Basin, killed a couple of people. And I got tagged by one of my longtime mentors. They said, Dan, you're, you're gonna be going to Duncan, Oklahoma, and you're gonna be some training with a special group. And you're gonna be part of our, you know, if something happens- Blowout crew? You're the guy that gets sent out there. Oh, wow. And so I got on the cleanup crew Wow! And so it was an adventure I from it there. Was. I mean, I get a call in the morning. oh, no, we blew out cold tube in a quarter mile in the air on a H two S well and closed in the BOPs. Twenty k BOPs oh. working pressure fifteen, oh, oh. but shut in pressure time was seventeen. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's a little hot. So, so what do you do <laughs> from that point on? You know, and I don't have a clue. And, I mean, and so I got to live an entire adventure. Wow. Doing stuff like that. Looking back, I'm like, oh, my gosh. That's crazy. We did some
0: crazy things back then. Were,
1: but I would not. You learn ha- I will not, would never wish to change that. And that's where we met my common friend, John. Okay. And me and John, we go back and he's, he's lived just as crazy of a life. So as funny you, you were telling me things I had never heard, so yeah. I think people like us that have survived and done it, you have sort of like a common character trait. Absolutely. That when you get around other ones- And that's part of this- You can relax
0: Part of this you, podcast is so that we can share that commonality to a lot more people. We can talk to our neighbor. He will not understand what we're talking about. He might be kind of sort of interested in what it could be, but he doesn't really get it. When you've been in the oil field and you start talking
1: oil field, then that conversation gets real. Yeah. I mean, you can't describe it to anybody. It's a brotherhood. It's a brotherhood. But when you know it, you know it. And...
0: I'm uh, offshore, I've been boss. offshore my whole life. I've never worked land-based. You've done more Both. land, right? No, 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 oh, I've done deep water. Oh, okay.
1: I've done digital twins for some of the deepest, highest pressure wells well, ever go. done in the world. And what are you doing now? Well, that, that's a, a <laughs> unique story. Well, let me say this before we get off into that. All right. My old boss told me, he says, you'll know it when you made it in this business. Because people will call you in the middle of the night, and you have no economic interest in what they're doing, but they will still seek out your advice. I you're still, there. <laughs> I, uh, well, I got a call the other two nights ago from India, and the guy's like, man, we don't have the cutters on our BOPs. I said, you're going to go into an 8,000-pound Maximum anticipated surface pressure without cutters. I don't advise it. And I'm not an advisor. Right. This is friend to friend. And he's like, you know, calling. What do I do? Yeah. You know, check base. I'm like, dude, you got to stand up. You got to say no. Just say no. Exactly. I won't get paid. You know, they'll put me on the airplane. I said, better than going to jail. Uh, Yeah. The the consequences, otherwise, it's worth a plane trip. Yeah. So get out of that. But. It sounds cool to get those calls right. from your boss to say, when you get those calls, you, you made, made it. it. But it's not cool when you get those calls because now you understand there's friends. there's... They're in situations. And they're they're in, in situations that are tough and they're having to navigate it. Right. And it's you financial know, for them. It's financial for the companies. I'm 100% oil field. I believe in the oil and gas industry. Now, the people that shortcut... The people that do things that are dumb, I don't like those people. Nope. They cost They're not my they friends. Cost the company. They cost us. They Absolutely. cost us our reputation. Industry. And, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter who you are, what's your logo behind you. If you're doing things that are not ethical and not pragmatic and not backed by science and just common sense— right you're doing everybody a disservice. Correct. So, you know, I feel for my friends that call me up in those situations because I'm like... You're going to give them the advice that they need to hear. Sometimes, another one of my friends, first blowout we were on is uh, uh, down in uh, Gaydon, Louisiana. (laughs) I showed up and there was geysers coming out. They were pulling a, a, a liner and... Or no, they were running a liner, broke down a low pressure zone, higher pressure zone underneath it kicked up, pushed everything up, split the casing about a thousand foot underneath the ground. Ooh. Geysers shooting up, everybody's running off location. Well, I showed up. We were going to do the cement job, and I was, I was still an engineer in that area. Well, then my boss said, "Okay, well, this is going to be your first blowout." Mm. So you're gonna spend time out there, when we kill the well, moving into snubbing unit. So one of my best friends, one of the smartest snubbing guys in the world, he's he's in uh, Saudi Arabia tonight. Okay. And Doug Hunter extraordinaire from home <laughs> Louisiana. I won't say his name, but one time he called me up from Japan. He was working on a geothermal project with a snubbing unit. He goes, Dan, what do you think about this? I said, I'm gonna be jumping the first airplane home. I talked to him about a month later. I said, how'd that job come out? Oh, I jumped the first airplane home. That was the smartest <laughs> advice you ever gave me. <laughs> sometimes they just need to hear
0: it from somebody else. They know but sometimes
1: it. sometimes you're dealing with friends that are stuck in situations yeah. financially, they need that paycheck. Correct, yeah. And you're trying and to help tough. them out the best you can. And that's tough. It is. So yes, my boss was correct. You'll know when you make it, but it's not always that great of a deal.
0: Right, and it's not fun and exciting, but it's
1: necessary. I mean, you're respected. You asked me the question, what am I doing today and why am I doing it? I had the pleasure and fortune of owning a couple of service companies and I owned one that had a product You could clean out flow lines and not create a hazardous situation. We were going out to a rig platform, and the company out there was pumping a product that was incredibly hazardous. I was actually shocked that they were doing it. What I didn't realize is my little brother, who me and him in college were roommates hmm. half the time till I got out of Texas and he went to Texas Tech. He was working for this company out there and they pumped the wrong product and blew up and killed him. Oh no. And I knew before the Coast Guard knew and was talking to my parents about it. Oh. They couldn't find them. And it was just the weirdest you know, twist of faith that that happened. So I took off a year and I literally went fishing. I fished for specs every freaking day for a year. I, I went up and down the Texas coast, got to know all the weirdest people <laughs> in the world. But me and my brother were like big, avid sportsmen. I mean, hunt geese together, go fishing. I mean, used to say, You're the pioneer, and I'm the perfectionist. He says, (laughs) Chuck, that's my nickname. Okay. He goes, you go out there, tear assing through the jungles and the deserts. And he said, I come back in and build the superhighway. And he was. He was that. But he got off into a group, and I didn't realize it. And it was just a strange twist of fate that that happened. So when I came back, I said, if I'm coming back into the oil field, I'm gonna do something that impacts safety. I'm gonna do something that impacts security of operations, certainty. And I'm a believer that you can't be safe and not be good. You're gonna execute and you're gonna have great service quality. You're gonna be safe in the same deal. Those are two inseparable deals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it might as well be that iceberg principle, <laughs> you know, with near misses and fatalities. So, you know, I went to work for several different software companies initially around anomaly detection, high-performance computing, leveraging AI and ML oh, wow. into identifying these areas. Then I migrated to more the human touch interface in the software where, you know, this like this oil company that it it happened to, if it would have entered in there, hey, we're going to do this flow line clean out. Right. Okay, third-party contractors log into the portal. What chemicals are you using? They log everything they're going to use. If they logged a highly oxidative chemical, it would have flagged it and said, somebody has to give approval. Wait a minute, right. Wait a minute type of situation. That's where I'm at.
0: I didn't even know that was part of the industry. What I mean is, there's obvious
1: analysis well, no, and- I mean, look at it. Our industry, first of all, this is the funny thing. I work in software, and they think they invented digital twin. <laughs> and I'm like laughing at them. I'm going, we've had digital twins since the 70s. What are you talking about? I said, what the hell? When you drill a well, you don't get to go down there and see what it looks like. right?" What do you got? Logs? Yep. You got seismic? You got production data? You got all these algorithms everybody's run off of the production data to do the nodal analysis. To make a decision. We we were doing digital twins way before y'all. Right. They've just created faster ways and... But they think digital twins is a 3D model (laughs) that shows something on there that's fancy. It looks good.
0: You still could see the same thing. It
1: just wasn't as pretty. Maybe as many colors... On the modeling side, our industry has really grown up and we're practical. Remember when I said we're innovative? Yeah. I mean, we reinvent ourselves all the time. That's why we love spreadsheets. (laughs) We love Excel spreadsheets. (laughs) Do we ever. Because we can recreate ourselves in a week where to have IT come in, put out a contract, redevelop software, even with agile and all that, Let's do not get off into that. I'm still a hardcore oil and gas guy. Even, uh, but we're getting to the point with Excel spreadsheets that, man, it used to, you had an asset team back in the old days, you might drill 20 wells a year. That was a busy year, or 40. Oh, it was real busy. Right. Now, some of these asset teams are drilling 300 wells. You yeah, can't keep track of that in Excel. No. And you got so many vendors. COVID came around, and I I could see a substantial difference in our industry. Before COVID, we were still set in our old ways. Yes. After COVID, people woke up and realized. It's a different way to do things. Hey, you got to learn to work from afar. Yeah. To learn to work from afar effectively, you need to have digital systems that support that. Absolutely, and look. And now you got certified natural gas coming. <laughs> you got all these. I mean, if you want to own an asset in New York, let's say you can go get financing for a small boutique field, which is tough nowadays. Now you got to have hundred thousand plus acre fields to get financing. You're going to go finance something for ten to fifteen thousand acres. Good, wow. good luck, man. Can't it's find tough. It tough challenge. You're going to develop this field. There's not going to be any digital infrastructure. It's all going to be paper files in a file room and Excel spreadsheets. Those days are gone. No, not anymore. So there's a digital transformation process that's taking place in the oil field. And again, we're inventive. I think this is going to lead to even more innovations. Nobody saw Mitchell coming out of that deal with the Barnett Shell. <laughs> that was out of left field. I think we're going to see some couple other type of innovation techniques, mostly around refracturing. You got a well. They know there's oil down there. You've only, you've only produced so many of the hydrocarbons out of it. Right. You know the, frac, the initial frack job was probably poorly planned because you got diminished returns mm-hmm. compared to the average. It's going to be, how do I re-stimulate that well?
0: I think they're going back now and doing some older wells that they... They've been doing it for forever.
1: Look, go back in time. Let's go back to the DJ Basin, San Juan Basin. Some of those vertical wells, how many times were they fracked in their career? Over and over. 10 to 12 times. Okay. Yeah, you didn't get 100% of the initial production, but you got 60 to 70.
0: But they're also going back in and doing horizontal. They're going back you can in with you the re- new technology re- and they're finding, hey, we found oil, but look what else is here. Or look, we didn't see this before because, like you were saying, the new technology.
1: If you ever read the book, The Big Rich by Brian Burrell, it was about the four wealthiest independent oil and gas guys. I think it was uh, Hunt, Cullen, who was, you know, uh, University of Houston fame. Murchison and Richardson. Now, Murchison's famous because he started the Cowboys. Okay, I didn't know that. Sid Richardson's famous because he ultimately, his nephews, became Bass, the Bass Oil Company. Well, Richardson and Bass were from my hometown Hmm. in Athens. It's a tiny little town with funny water. (laughs) A lot of smart people came out. Not me. Oh, come on now. <laughs> now, nah, we're not going down that not road. my brother. Well, nah, we're not going down that road. We know how smart he was.
0: He was going to build it. You were just yeah, going to find know. the path. exactly.
1: They yeah. asked Cullen, they were like, you know, what was your secret? He was like, well, if you want to find oil, go find it where it's already been found. He drilled deeper. Exactly right. And there's still other... Levels below. We've been doing that. What do you think the shell revolution is? It was. Absolutely. We, we went from the source, uh, I mean, to the reservoir rocks. Oil. Yep. Down to the source rocks. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? And what else are we going to invent
0: next? What are we going to find next?
1: I think the next thing is going to be around logging technologies and tracking the hydrocarbon system, how it communicates. Now, on an offshoot deal, I think the other big, super major innovations gonna come around produced water. How do we take produced water and make it potable so we can use it for agricultural? Okay. There's gonna be technology that brings out- Now, the other one, the third one, is gonna be carbon sequestration. Capturing CO2, I mean, I can't name names right. but it's why everybody's acquiring who they're acquiring. Yeah. And well, where they're acquiring them to make blue hydrogen and capture CO two. Right. They're
0: doing some testing around my neighborhood in my general area of South Louisiana that has got a lot of people's attention. Yeah. And it has to do exactly with that. Carbon and capture. It,
1: it, and it's pragmatic in the sense that injecting CO two, we've been doing that as an industry for what Maybe 40, 50 Pressure years. formations and, yeah. I mean, CO2, Just EOR, back in. EOR recovery. You know, you inject CO2, you reduce the viscosity of the oil. Mm-hmm. You change the, you know, the wetting properties of the formation. Allows it to flow better. Yep. So tell me something
0: fun and interesting. You're a smart man. You're smarter than I am, but uh, I want well, to know, a- know some of your, your funnies. Some My of your, funnies? Yeah. My funnies. What's some is- of the crazy things that have happened?
1: Oh, I can't tell that. Oh, all right, we we'll have to <laughs> keep them out. I mean, <laughs> we we'll have to get congressional approval. <laughs> all right, we We'll have to sign a couple of NDAs, yeah. and uh, but I mean, some about Dan Morrison. He's a he's a longtime Longhorn. All right, I bleed burn orange. <laughs> well, all I'm right, a all and gold. right, all right. I'm at LSU, so we had a good week with Army last week. I like LSU, man. I've been to some interesting football games in Louisiana. <laughs> I was there when USL beat A&M. Oh, wow. And I was sitting next to one of the Junction boys. He was my boss, oh, and gosh. I won't say name, but his eyes were about to poke out of his head oh. about that third interception for a touchdown. So, but no, I love I love football. And I love the oil and gas industry. Yeah, I really do. The people around me know that too. Back to what we were saying earlier. It's a brotherhood that one of the things I'm
0: trying to get in this podcast is the fact that we're just oil field trash. We're just oil field hands. We just, right. our hands are dirty. You know, we work hard, we play hard. And
1: uh, the coolest thing about being on a rig offshore is they feed you four meals a day. <laughs> you can eat, you can have midnight lunch and it's a hamburger cheeseburger. And my hometown is also the home of the hamburger, the home of the hamburger, home of the hamburger. Two of the wealthiest independent oil and gas guys. Last place they made TV sets in America. Curtis Mathis. Oh wow! I, I would I would get some water from Athens. Well, right. I need to stop by there and get something <laughs> to drink. Probably the all right. Probably the funniest thing is my wife. Let's just say that I worked for a red company. Okay. My wife worked for the Blue Company. And on our first date, we didn't know that. Hmm,
0: hmm, hmm,
1: hmm. What do you do for a living? That's what she said. (laughs) I told her, she started laughing. And I was like, what, you think I'm a nerd? she goes, no, I I do the same thing. (laughs) I said, said, which one of my friends put you up to this? (laughs) You you knew you were set up. I knew I was set up. But it was a blind date. It was a blind date. Wow. That was funny. Well, I hope to have her on one day. Oh, I hope she comes on too. I think uh, it'll be awesome. Sounds good.
0: We're going to wrap it up, brother. It's uh, 47 minutes into it. Thank you very much.
1: You have a great evening. You
0: too. Appreciate it. Nomad Mobile Productions is a broadcasting and media production company that produces podcasts and provides a mobile podcast studio complete with audio and video recording equipment. We also offer post-production processing, editing, marketing, and publication for podcasts. Our mobile production studio will come to you. Visit our webpage, nomadmobileproductions.com, or our Facebook,